I appreciate so much Phil being willing to lead singing today and doing such a great job. And Sunday nights are just a wonderful time for us to get together and sing. And I know we've enjoyed that. We have not only had an enjoyable, rich Sunday, we also had an enjoyable Saturday as several were here for our work day and were working on putting teddy bears together. We were able to clean out a classroom that is now ready to be used And we were able to paint some chairs and to do some wonderful things throughout the building. We really appreciate all the work of those who came and and put the effort in there. That's going to make a big difference. We do want to remind everyone that our family day is coming up this coming Sunday. And that means that all of our auditorium classes, all of our adult classes will meet here in the auditorium. And we will have Lonnie Jones speaking to us, who has a tremendous amount of experience as a counselor as a minister, as a speaker, so he'll have a great perspective for us on families, and we'll definitely want to be a part of that. If you haven't done so already, grab a postcard outside and invite someone to come and to be with you on Sunday. There are several words in our language that we probably understand when people use them. We could probably use them in a sentence, but when it comes time to really put a specific definition on them, Sometimes it's difficult. Let me try something that I tried in class this morning. Just get a simple show of hands. How many here have heard the word atonement before? How many? Just raise your hand if you've heard them. All right. See, we've, many of us have heard that word before. But even if we've heard the word before and when someone uses it, we probably have an understanding of what it means. You know, it's difficult to try to encapsulate in a definition the meaning of that word atonement. Well, we're going to try to do that this evening. If you would, go ahead and be opening your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll be there in just a moment. It's on page 1067 in your pew Bibles, if you'd like to take a Bible from the pew in front of you. This morning, when uh, David called and told me that he was not feeling well, and we tried to plan out the day, uh, he had originally planned to be out of town this evening, and so I thought, well... I can present the sermon for this evening in the morning. And since we're going through our fall focus on the cross, I thought, well, I don't want us to miss a Sunday of focusing on the cross. And so I'll just find out what David was going to preach on, and then we'll study that in the evening. And then I looked at the title that had been selected, uh, Understanding Atonement, uh, all about atonement in one sermon. And my next thought was, who is the education minister that puts these fall focus schedules together? Because... I've got to talk to that guy. I mean, this is, this is a difficult challenge for us. And so we're going to be diving into the text here, and we're going to go to some different places, but mainly uh, we'll be reading out of the book of Hebrews as we think about what atonement means. And I hope you talked about this in your Bible classes today. I hope some of the scriptures and passages you looked up have stuck with you. One of the most helpful ways to understand this word is really the way it was listed in early dictionaries as Three separate words, kind of an at one meant. And I like this definition that I'd like for us to use just to help us put some words onto this term and really wrap our minds around it. To atone is to bring together in mutual agreement. So you have two parties that are coming together in mutual agreement with the added idea of reconciliation, which means if there's been some kind of barrier to fellowship that they can be reconciled to each other through the vicarious suffering of one on behalf of the other. Have you ever known a, a parent or, or grandparent, and someone would say about that parent or grandparent, well, he's just trying to live vicariously through his son. 
Or she's trying to live vicariously through her daughter. That's the kind of term we're using here. Vicarious suffering on behalf of one on behalf of the other. So in other words, just to help us paint a mental picture here, we have two parties that are coming together and they have to come together in mutual agreement, but there's something in between. So in order for reconciliation, for them to be reconciled with each other, there has to be vicarious suffering of one on behalf of another. In other words, one has to suffer and one gains the benefits from that suffering. If we can just use this definition and kind of help us wrap our minds around what it means to think about atonement, when I focus on my relationship with God, I realize, based on everything that I read in the New Testament, that I've sinned. And because I've sinned, there's a separation there, but in my relationship with God, if God and I are going to be at one, something has to be done about this barrier of sin that separates us. And as we think about the latter half of this definition, we think about a, a sacrifice of vicarious suffering for, from one on behalf of another, we can understand the importance, the value of Jesus' sacrifice. But this evening, I want to help us understand that this discussion is not just a theoretical discussion. It's not just something for the head. It's also something we have to understand for the heart. Because there are a couple of questions that we're going to be asked by our friends and co-workers. One of them might be this. What is so special about Jesus' death? Here we've been studying it for weeks as we've studied about the cross. What is so special about Jesus' death? You know, there have been hundreds of people who have died for a cause before. What makes this one unique? Why would you spend so much time worrying and studying about and learning about the death of just one individual? And as we think about those we'll come in contact with, they can look around our world and and we have several examples of death all around us, don't we? We have examples of, of tragic death. You may have heard earlier this year the story of Edith Rodriguez, who was, who was coming in and she couldn't get any doctor's attention as she came into a hospital in Southern California. She couldn't get anyone's attention. She was trying to tell them about a problem she was having. She couldn't get anyone's attention. She tried to dial 911 from inside the hospital, and she couldn't get through that way. She collapsed on the floor, and as she was there on the floor, doctors were stepping over her, nurses were walking around her. No one stopped to help her. And as she eventually lost her life, the news story made its way around America. How could this happen? In the middle of a hospital with all of these doctors and nurses, how could this take place? It was a tragedy. It's tragic. We live and see tragic deaths around us all the time. What would make Jesus' death unique? Or we might think of some of the terrible shootings that have taken place over the past few years, especially with the the shooting at Virginia Tech maybe being one of the most fresh on our minds. We can't comprehend the senseless violence that we see around us. It's difficult to wrap our minds around, isn't it? To try to understand how that could happen, what it would be like to be there. We see senseless acts of violence all around us. We also see some stories of heroes, people who sacrifice their lives for others. People like Michael A. Mansour, who was a Navy SEAL, And because of the nature of their mission and uh, the fact they need to maintain their anonymity, there's not a lot of details that were known about this story. But as different groups of of different members of his troop were interviewed, and their names were withheld, but they described being outside of Baghdad as a grenade was thrown at this huddle of them gathered around, Michael his eyes made contact with the, with the grenade. He made eye contact with it, 
and then dove on top of it, saving all of those in his crew. In fact, one 28-year-old said that from the time he saw that grenade, his eyes never left it, and he immediately dove toward it, saving my life and the others around me. It's amazing when we think about the ways people will be willing to sacrifice for others. And when we look at a sacrifice like this one, it has to warm our hearts, doesn't it? To think of someone who has that much compassion. And so we see these stories of brave sacrifice, and our question might become this one. What is so different about Jesus' death? It was a tragic death. We see tragic deaths all around us. It seems senseless. We've talked about the cruelty and the scourging and the crucifixion. It was a, a sacrifice, a heroic sacrifice, which we've seen. But what makes it so different? This evening, as we think about the atonement, it will be important for us to understand that Jesus' death was more than, than just a tragic passing, a senseless act, or a heroic sacrifice. All of those are important. We see all those around us. And our heart aches for those who have to undergo such, such tragedy in their lives, the, such senseless acts, when we see people sacrificed. But Jesus' death has a meaning that no other death on earth could have. And as we study about the importance of Jesus' sacrifice, I want us to keep that in mind. There's another question that we might often get asked. What does it matter? In fact, many people that we work with or go to school with might wonder why we get together and we study the life of someone who lived 2,000 years ago and who is no longer physically present walking the earth like you or I or people that we come into contact with every day. Why would that matter? I'm reminded of the statement that Huck Finn makes in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. You may have had to read this growing up. When he first learned about Moses, the biblical individual Moses from Mrs. Douglas, he said, I was in a sweat to find out all about him. But by and by, she let it out that Moses had been dead a considerable long time. So then I didn't care no more about him because I don't take no stock in dead people. Now, we kind of smile when we think of Huckleberry Finn, the way he spoke and the way he dealt with this. But isn't that true? Don't we live in a world that doesn't think much about people who have passed on years and years before? We're in the business of what can you do for me now? Who's here now? What's going to happen in the future? And if we're not careful, people might say, what's so special about this death? Why does it affect me? I want us to answer both those questions tonight as we think about atonement. Because Jesus' death precedes his resurrection. Why does Jesus' death affect me? Well, because his death was not the end of the story. In fact, his death precedes a resurrection. When we sing together, he lives, we know that it's true. And so as we think about that, we also realize that his death and then following resurrection has eternal spiritual implications for all of us. So that's what makes it worth our time and worth investigation. Here are a couple of principles as we get started. Number one, I need to understand I am going to need help. If I try to understand the cross, if I read about the cross, I'm going to need help. And let's look at where Jesus would take us for help when he talks about the cross. In Luke chapter 24, we read about disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to read this passage and then go directly to Hebrews chapter 9. But beginning in verse 13, uh, we find out after Jesus' resurrection that behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have had with one another, as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? 
and have not yet known the things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And listen to this statement in verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels and that he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If I've ever had a difficulty understanding the cross, I'm not alone. Because there were disciples on the road to Emmaus who couldn't understand what all was taking place. They knew that Jesus had been delivered over to be crucified. They knew the reports that he had been raised from the dead. But they couldn't put it all together. And notice where Jesus takes them as he describes what has happened. As he describes his mission. He begins with the Old Testament with Moses, with the prophets. And as he goes through the scripture, he describes to them what needed to take place and how his coming fulfills those prophecies. If I want to understand the cross, I'm going to have to look to scripture for guidance. And so as we think about atonement and the cross, we're not going to be able to understand it apart from God's word. And as we search both Old and New Testaments, we will continually be finding new aspects of the cross that we haven't seen before. And we'll continue to learn new facts about it. Also, we need to understand that there is no one phrase or one image that can fully capture the cross. As we look through Hebrews, we are going to see Jesus described in different ways. We're going to see his sacrifice described in different ways. And those aren't contradictions. Those are simply reminders that we can't come up with one image that describes everything about Jesus' death on the cross. Just like there's no one parable that describes everything about heaven. We're talking about spiritual matters, and that's difficult for us to put in physical terms. So keep those things in mind. There are two major reasons that Jesus' death is is important to us, that it matters, and they help us understand atonement. Those two reasons, although there are many others, I'd like for us to look at this evening. Number one... If I want to understand atonement, I must understand that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Now remember, we are far removed from the Jewish system of sacrifices we read about in the Old Testament. And so it might not be as fresh on our mind all the ways in which Jesus fulfills this, uh, this description of the ultimate sacrifice. But I'd like for us to look at a few ways that we see. You may remember that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 describing Christ as our Passover And what's fascinating is to go back to Exodus 12 and to see all of the requirements for the Passover lamb as the Passover meal was going to be be observed and as it would continue to be observed throughout the years, pointing back to God's deliverance out of of slavery and into the promised land. Notice, Notice a few of these requirements. First of all, Exodus 12 verse 5 tells us that the Passover lamb had no defect. It wasn't one of the flock you were trying to get rid of. It wasn't a runt that you were trying to get off your hands. This was a lamb without blemish, without defect. Its blood even saved lives. In Exodus 12 and verse 13, we see that when that blood was put on the doorpost, that those who were in that house were spared from that death of the firstborn plague. 
that was coming through. Also, no bones of the lamb were broken. And that's an interesting side note that comes into play later as we look at Jesus' crucifixion. The lamb was the center of a sacred meal, a Passover feast that would be kept for years to come, and it also symbolized God's deliverance out of slavery and into the promised land. You know, when we look at Jesus, we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus had no sin. And so he was without spot, without blemish, without defect. His blood also saves lives. When we come into contact with that blood, we are saved not physically, but eternally. Eternally to live with him. No bones were broken. This is an insight that John gives us in his gospel that is fascinating because, as you remember, if someone is being crucified, one of the ways that they can get air into their lungs is to push up from from their feet and their legs in order to, to inhale. And so if you wanted someone to die more quickly on the cross, one of the ways you could do that is by breaking his legs. When they come to do that to Jesus, they find out he's already dead. So none of his bones are broken. We also see that Jesus' sacrifice is the center of a sacred meal, isn't it? Didn't we partake of that this morning as we came together? We commemorated the Lord's Supper and thought about His flesh and blood that was offered on the cross for us. And also as a reminder of God's deliverance. God's deliverance not in a physical way, like for the children of Israel, but in a spiritual way, spending an eternity with Him. Now as we think about this, there's also another way in which Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And I want us to read the first seven verses of Hebrews chapter 9 together. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. And the writer here is going to tell us about life under the first covenant, the old covenant. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went in to the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now the entire book of Hebrews deals with the ways in which the old law was a shadow, was was a type of what was to come. And so as he describes the tabernacle that we read of the children of Israel uh, making sure that they they were keeping those laws and commandments uh, that God had given them, the tabernacle which was God's way of a holy God dwelling with an unholy people, he describes uh, the way in which a high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. As we think about it, it might be helpful to get a little bit of a picture of what's taking place here in the tabernacle. He describes two areas of the, the tent, uh, some translations you know, might say first tent, because obviously the tabernacle itself uh, is, is a tent, and so each room might be described as a tent as well. But you have the holy place, the, the outer, the sanctuary, as the Hebrew writer would call it, and then the holiest of holies, the most holy place. And inside, he describes what's in, what is in each one. And so, as we think about this, I, I want to read to you, share with you, a description of what would happen on the Day of Atonement. As we think about this, I want to give us just sort of a a blow-by-blow description of what would take place. We read about this in in Leviticus 16, but let me describe what would happen. The high priest could only enter this most holy place on the Day of Atonement, and no one was to be in the tent 
when the high priest entered the most holy place. This was a day in which all Israelites would fast and not do any work. And notice the way in which the priest had to prepare. He had to remove his priestly garb, and then he had to bathe and put on special attire for the Day of Atonement. And so you get the sense of what a special day, what a special time this is. He wasn't wearing his normal ceremonial garments. He was putting on a linen tunic, linen undergarments, linen sash, a linen turban, and then he would present the offerings for the day. He would offer a bull as a sin offering for himself. He would have two goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And so as he would take the bull, he, he would slaughter it and sprinkle the bull's blood on and in front of the atonement cover. He would take two goats and he would cast lots. One would be sacrificed to the Lord and then one would be the scapegoat. And if you've ever wondered where the term scapegoat came from, here we see the Old Testament practice of a scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. And so he would take the goat as a sin offering for the people doing as he did with the bull's blood. And then he would take the other goat, the scapegoat. They would lay, lay their hands on the goat, confess all of Israel's sins, and then send it away into the desert. And there were chosen people who would release it into the desert. And so then the high priest would go back, would, would change again, removing his special entire bathing and putting on his ordinary uh, priestly garb. And then he would pre- present a burnt offering for himself and then for people. And then you would have uh, those who had taken part in letting the goat go as well as... Uh, as all of the hides and, and flesh and everything that was left over, uh, those would be taken and, and burned. And the men who, who uh, did that and also who released the scapegoat uh, would wash their clothes and would wash themselves. And so we can see the special ceremony that was set apart for this day. Now, I set all that as a backdrop just to remind us what a powerful message it would be for someone to say that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Can you imagine If you had been a Jew and every year you would go and you would see the Day of Atonement take place and the next year you would come back and the curtain would still be between the holy holy place and the most holy place, you would still have to offer another sacrifice and then the next year you'd have to offer another sacrifice. Can you imagine what would happen if someone came and said, you no longer have to do that, we have the perfect once for all sacrifice. And yet that's exactly what the Hebrews writer would say. Look at some of the phrases we see in these verses. He would say, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then in chapter 10, verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering he is perfected forever, those who are being sanctified. The Israelites needed to make those offerings just the way God had laid them out. And they could please God by making those offerings. But that separation that was there with that curtain, with the holiest of holy places, uh, that place that only the high priest could enter and only once a year still existed year after year until Jesus' sacrifice. And we know from our study of the cross that when the temple, which accomplished a similar purpose in the, t- in the temple, uh, a curtain in the temple, which accomplished a similar purpose as the one in the tabernacle, when Jesus died, that temple was torn from top to bottom. God was letting us know there is no longer a separation. We no longer have to have priests or high priests enter that one area on our behalf. The ultimate sacrifice. Jesus' one sacrifice was offered for all. So as we think about atonement, that would have been an idea that was very common to the Jews when they thought about the Day of Atonement. And they would think about all of of the ceremony that needed to take place in order for an offering to be given. And yet Jesus is the perfect offering of atonement. Now, that may be something we're a little more familiar with. That may be a concept that's a little more familiar to us. I like the way Isaac Watts put it. 
He said, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain, but Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. We may know about Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice, but how many times do we think about Jesus being the perfect high priest? And here's one of those situations where Jesus is, also, is described as a sacrifice and also the one who offers those sacrifices. Let's read in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Not only is Jesus the ultimate sacrifice, he is the perfect high priest. We read about what the high priest did on the Day of Atonement. As high priest, Jesus offered his sacrifice. You remember, Jesus wasn't led to the cross against his will. In fact, he would say in John 10 and verse 17, My Father loves me because I laid down my life. No one takes it from me, verse 18, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Just like a high priest was making a sacrifice, Jesus was making the sacrifice of himself. He was laying it down. And you may remember when Pilate began to question Jesus in John 19 and verse 10 when he says, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and the power to release you? Remember Jesus' answer? You could have no power against me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus was laying down his life. He was offering that sacrifice as a high priest. Also, as a high priest, Jesus is the only one we need. The Hebrew writer makes that point over and over again to his audience. He says, it is far more evident, verse 15 of Hebrews 7, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Not a fleshly commandment, but an endless life. Verse 23, he would write, there are many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. You see, with Jesus as our high priest, we don't have to worry about who's next in line or we don't have to worry about the lineage continuing because as we know, he lives today and offers that eternal life for us. The Hebrews writer also talked about a high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for his people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You know, every priest would have to offer sacrifices not only for the people, but for himself. Jesus is our high priest. We do not need to do that. And he does not need to do that because of his once-for-all sacrifice. Also, as high priest, Jesus offers his blood. Into the second part of the high priest went alone once a year. Verse 7 would say, not without blood. And in verse 12, the writer would tell us, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The high priest couldn't enter that place without blood. Couldn't enter that holiest of holies without blood. Jesus is our high priest offered not the blood of, of, of bulls or goats that would have to be offered again and again and again, but he entered with his own blood and offered that on our behalf. Now as we think about the, the challenge for atonement and explaining it to others, they may ask us what's so special about Jesus' death. There are many reasons that Jesus' death is special. But the two we've looked at tonight are he is the ultimate sacrifice and the perfect high priest. 
If anyone asks us that question, we can think back to all of the sacrifices that had to be made under the Old Covenant and realize Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice means that those would never have to be made again. In fact, the Hebrews writer uh, continues to point out the fact that because of that once-for-all sacrifice, if someone were to try to make sacrifice, try to, try to live under those Jewish uh, commandments, those Old Covenant commandments, it would be as if he was saying, Jesus' death isn't good enough. It doesn't accomplish enough. It doesn't cover enough. The Hebrews writer lets us know nothing could be further from the truth. Why does it matter? Well, this sacrifice allows us to be at one with God, atoning for all of our sins. It's important for us to understand atonement. And there is so much more I wish we had time for us to go into this evening. And as as we spend time over the next few weeks thinking about the cross and, and understanding its meaning for us, we'll explore some of those areas. It's important to understand something. But it's also important to take advantage of it. You know, I can have all of the facts about God's word in my mind. I can know Jesus' life backwards and forwards. I can know all of the Old Covenant, all of the New Testament. But if I never take action on what I know, wouldn't that be a shame? Wouldn't it be a shame to have all of this information in my head yet never act on it? See, understanding atonement is one thing. Understanding that Jesus' death is far more than anything that we witness around us. Anything we could ask or imagine. Understanding that is important. Taking advantage of it is more important as we think about our lives and what effect that decision has on our eternity. As we've thought about Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, I'd like to remind all of us that he's also opened up a way in which we can take advantage of that sacrifice. We can come into contact with that blood, that that perfect sacrifice. We can live in eternity with him if we just make the decision to obey his will to submit to him in baptism, to raise up and begin walking that life that glorifies and honors him and spreads the gospel to all those around us. We can make that decision to take advantage of this atonement and we can do it tonight. If you need to make that decision, won't you please come forward as we stand and sing together.